Uh, when we think about the Christian life, we should see that the Christian life is a journey to joy. I want to say it again. When we think about the Christian life, we need to understand and see that the Christian life should be seen as a journey to joy. Uh, there are many definitions of joy, but I want to place one on the screen, one that I have used and one that I have found comfort in over the years. It's been said that joy is a deep, settled confidence that God is in control of all of the details of my life. It is quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right because God is in control. It's a confidence. It's a, it's a deep, settled conviction in the heart that God is in control and that God, and since God is in control, everything is going to be all right. And since we know that everything is going to be all right, since we know that everything uh, in life is handled under the authority of the Lord, you and I can have joy regardless of the circumstances and situations in life. Why? Because God is ultimately in control. In my life personally, I have found that I am most joyful. I have found that I am most confident. I have found that I am most consistent in praising God when I have the right mindset. When I have the mindset, when I choose the mindset that I get to versus I have to, I usually have joy in my life. I want to make this clear. In the Christian life, we have a choice to make. We can operate based upon I get to, or we can operate based upon I have to. If we're honest this morning, for many of us, we woke up thinking, I have to go to church. I have to give a tithe. I have to serve with the kids. I have to sing. I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to clean the house. I have to take care of these kids. Rather than being joyful and rather than being thankful with the opposite mindset. As believers... I should have the mindset because of my relationship with Christ that because of grace, I have an opportunity where I get to do certain things. I don't have to do things. I get to. Because of God's grace, I get to be a part of God's family. Because of grace, I get to do life with other believers. Because of grace, I get to, um, I get to live a life where God uses me to be salt and light in the world. I get to rather than thinking about I have to. Personally, this is something that I continue to go back to. I talked about this last year and I wanted to talk about it again today because if I'm not careful, if I'm not, if I'm not very careful and cautious in my life spiritually, I will get to this place in my life where I'm going through the motions and I'm just saying I have to. I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to do the kids. I have to be in ministry. I have to preach. I have to Versus understanding that God has been so good to me, that God has been better to me than I deserve. And since God has been better to me than I deserve, my mindset needs to be one of thankfulness and appreciation to God. Tomorrow when I go to work, I get to go to work because I get to provide for my family. I get to go to church today because it gives me an opportunity to be with my spiritual family I get to open up God's word because God wants to speak to me. I get to do ministry because God has blessed me with the privilege to do it. And if we are not careful, if we are not cautious in our lives, if we are not um, very focused on Christ, we can live life in such a way where we just have this mindset of I have to that brings us 
out of the journey to joy. When you think about the text, you see uh, three different characters. You see three different folks or three different groups who all had the mindset that they got to uh, live out a relationship with Jesus. When you go back to chapter number one, you look at Elizabeth and her response. When Mary comes, she doesn't say, I have to host Mary. She says, I get to host the mother of the Lord. Mary says, I, my soul gets to magnify the Lord. She didn't say, I have to magnify God. She says, I get to magnify the Lord. In the text today, the, the, the mindset of the shepherds is not, I have to go see the baby. The mindset is, I'm joyful because I get to go and see the baby. Because they were deep in joy. They, because of joy, they, were, they had a deep settled confidence that God was in control. Because of joy, they had a deep settled confidence that God was filling, fulfilling his promise. And because of joy, they made a journey to Jesus so that they could celebrate what God was doing. Uh, they didn't try to create a moment for themselves. They said, I want to figure out where God is working, and I want to go and join God in the work. I really believe that should be our mindset, that rather than trying to create something for myself, I want to figure out how is the Lord choosing to work, and I want to join God in that work. When we look at the text, we have four things that we want to talk about this morning. We have four specific things that speak to this journey to joy. And the first thing we see is that the, that the shepherds, uh, that, the, that, that, that the angels were dispatched to the shepherds. Verse two, verse, chapter 2, verse 8 says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. On last Sunday, we spoke about how God will oftentimes place us in uncomfortable positions to help us, that God will enroll you in what we call the university of adversity to help you grow in your faith, that when God does that, God is not trying to punish you or hurt you, but God does that, A, to transform your character, and B, God does it to extend his kingdom. Last week, we saw that Mary was put in an uncomfortable place, but now we see that God uses an unlikely uh, messenger to carry the message. When we consider the text, we can clearly see that God not only made the choice uh, to give his son to a pauper rather than a princess, that God makes a decision to send his son to a lowly carpenter rather than a high-ranking official, but God also chooses to pick messengers who are found in a field Rather than, rather than picking messengers who are found in a hallway of learning. Like in the text, no one would have picked the shepherds. Like no one would have said, let me find a shepherd to dispatch the message. But God says, I want to send the angels to the shepherds rather than the priest. God says, I want to do it totally different than the world would do it. Some might be wondering, why did God send the angels to the shepherds? I mean, was it because they were deeply religious? No. Was it because they were doing extreme acts of devotion? No. Was it because they were inside the church praising God? No. Was it because they gave a big offering? No. Was it because they spoke in tongues and they, they ran around the church screaming and yelling? No. When you look at the text, God makes a decision to dispatch the angels right where they were, right in a mundane place, right in a, in a place where they were essentially going, uh, going through the motions of life. 
I love that truth because it reminds me that when God speaks, it doesn't have to be uh, this, this perfect, once again, set of circumstances. But God can speak right where I am. Like God knows my address and God knows how to get a message to wherever I am. The shepherds, if they were to testify this morning, they would say, God met me on my job. They would say, God met me when I least expected. They would say, God gave me a testimony to where I was focused on a field and God did something to increase my faith. I believe many of us can say that too, that we were not necessarily pursuing God. We were not necessarily going after God, but God has a way of orchestrating our life to where God meets us exactly where we are. For some of us, God met us in the office. For some of us, God met us at a store. For some of us, God met us at home. The most important part of the text is God met them, not in a religious building, not with a preacher present, but God met them right where they were. In the text, God dispatches the angels to the shepherds, and this is an unexpected group. Some would have thought that he would have sent a priest or he would have sent the angels to a prophet or even a pastor. But God chose common men because the message is for common people. God did not wait for the religious right, but God sent the, the message to people who the world would not expect to carry the message. When you think about it, even in the text, um, in the Old Testament, there is a higher view of the shepherds, but even in the New Testament, there had been this transition to where the shepherds had become a despised group, uh, specifically because they, they, they worked in a way that kept them from going to the temple. Essentially, their jobs kept them from going to church. So the preachers got mad that they wouldn't come to church. So the, the, the preachers in the religious right began to, to, to speak negatively about them not coming to the temple. The preachers and those who were there present made a decision to, to ostracize them or cast them to the side, but God made a decision to meet them right where they are. And for, for me, it's a reminder that God speaks to us in not just unexpected ways, but God uses unexpected people. The fact that I am a preacher is mind-blowing. If you were to go back to Chattanooga, and you were to meet some people who knew the old Thomas Settles. Really, it's not Thomas Settles. Everybody in Chattanooga calls me Colin Settles, right? My name is Thomas Colin. Everybody pre-high school calls me Colin. And they would say that I was the most obnoxious, the most prideful, the most hard-headed person you ever met. Some of y'all may say I still have some of those qualities. <laughs> but the fact that the Lord would transform my life and allow me to be in ministry is a testimony to his grace. It's a reminder for me that I should never give up on anybody. Like if the Lord can send his angels to speak to the shepherds who are outcasts, then, then who am I to say who God can't reach or who God can't speak through? Like who am I to think that God is not able to still reach people who are in uncomfortable places? Verse 10 says, and the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I will bring you good news of great joy. That will be for the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and the baby will be wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You see three very specific promises here. You see a promise of salvation. You see a promise of a Savior. You see a promise of a sign. I don't have time to go into it too deeply. But first, 
The promise of salvation is significant because salvation is for all people. It's not just for the religious people or the perfect people. It's for all people. The Savior is a reminder that, that what we need the most is a, is, a sinless, uh, is a sinless sacrifice who is willing to give his life for us. The sign was a reminder that, that God specifically uh, was telling them exactly who would bring peace. When you think about it, There's a significant promise in verse 14 that we need to consider. It says, they were saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. On earth, peace among those whom God is pleased. It is clear in the text that the passage promises peace, but catch this, the promise for peace is not for everyone. In the text... Peace is only promised to those who are pleasing to God. Don't miss what the text is saying. Peace in the text. This is not Thomas. In the text. Peace is only promised to those who are pleasing to God. So the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, how can I be pleasing to God? That's, That's how we should read the Bible. The Bible says that God gives peace to those who are pleasing to him, then you and I need to ask ourselves the question, how can you and I please God? I feel like I'm a broken record on this point, but it's just too good not to say it again. The Christian life is not about impressing God. The Christian life is not about God being pleased with your level of performance. God is not in heaven watching the scoreboard of your life like we watch a football game in a stadium. God is not and never will be impressed by your performance. But catch this, God can be pleased by your faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Say it again. And without faith, without trust, It is impossible to please him. If you're wondering this morning, how can you please God? I want you to catch this. The people who are pleasing to God are the people who trust in God. Say it again. If you want to please God, if you want to please the Lord, what God desires from you is more trust. It's not more performance. It's not just speaking for him more or posting about him more or being associated with him more. If you want to please the Lord more, the question that you got to ask yourself is this. Am I willing to place my trust in the Lord? I think it's very, but even before we get to our application, it's very important for us to consider. Personally, we're just having a talk, just me and you by ourselves. Is your life pleasing to the Lord? Didn't ask, did you go to church? Didn't ask, did you give a, give a big offering today? Didn't ask, did you sing? I didn't ask how many Sundays in a row you've been to church or how many days in a row you've had a quiet time. I'm asking you specifically, are you pleasing to the Lord with your life? If you want to be pleasing to God, based on the text, If you want God to be pleased with your life, the scripture says, then you and I must possess faith. 
Now, here's the hard part about faith. The Bible speaks about faith in a lot of different ways. There are a lot of different aspects of faith. I want you to go with me quickly to James chapter number 2. I'm going to read a significant portion of Scripture. James 2, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers or sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things that is needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Don't have time to to jump deep in there, but if you go back and read James this week, it gives us a, a, a description of faith in three different ways. First thing we see in James chapter number two is the description of dead faith. Dead faith says the right things, but does not follow with the right actions. Say it again. Dead faith says the right things, but does not follow with the right actions. Dead faith is marked by an intellectual commitment. Secondly, you have not only dead faith, but you have demonic faith. The text says, you do well to believe, even the demons believe and tremble. The fact that your emotions are stirred does not mean that you have biblical faith. There are a lot of us who have faith that is only emotional. There are a lot of us who have faith that is only intellectual. And an intellectual faith and an emotional faith is not saving faith. You see dead faith, you see demonic faith, but also the most important one is you see a dynamic faith. Dynamic faith involves the mind, the emotions, and the will. The mind understands the truth, the emotions desire and rejoices in the truth, and the will acts upon the truth. It's more than intellectual. It's more than you just have information in your head. It's more than you just being moved in your emotions. It is a life that leads to commitment and works and faith being married together. When you look at the text, peace with God does not come from your performance. Peace with God does not come from your property or possessions, but peace with God comes after you place your faith in the payment that Christ has paid for you. So first thing we see is the dispatch to the shepherds, but second we see the decision of the shepherds. Verse 15 says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They received a message from God, and it required them to make a decision. This is only the second chapter in Luke, but we are seeing a pattern here. In chapter number one, Zechariah received a message from God, and he had a decision concerning whether or not he would trust God. In chapter number one, you also see Mary received a message from God, and she had to make a decision whether or not she would trust God. In chapter number two, 
the, the, the shepherds receive a message from God and they are faced with the same challenge. Catch the scope here. In chapter number one, you have an old man who is a priest who is in the temple. Same challenge. You have a peasant girl who's preparing to be married. Same challenge. You have a group of shepherds who are working in the field. They all had the same challenge. Would they receive and accept and trust the message that they have from God? In verse 15, it reminds us that they were not simply committed to listening to the message of God. That's what we're doing right now. We're listening to the message. But they were also committed to seeing the message come to fulfillment. They were committed to seeing the promise fulfilled. They were committed to seeing and experiencing it for themselves. That opportunity was, pre- was presented to Zechariah. The opportunity was presented to, to Mary. The opportunity is, was presented to the shepherds. But catch this. The opportunity is also presented to each and every one of us every time we open up God's word. Like every time you open up the word, every time you have a message from God, you have an opportunity to either trust the message or reject the message. Every time God speaks to you, every time the Lord gives you a truth, you have got to get to, your, to a place in your life where you understand either I'm accepting what God has said or I'm rejecting what God has said. When God tells me as a parent that my, my children are like arrows, that, that the scriptures tell me that my children are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, and I have a responsibility to disciple my children. Do I trust what God has said in his word? When God tells me in Proverbs to not lean on to my own understanding, that when I don't lean to my own understanding, that I do not trust in my heart, but I trust his ways. When God tells me that in his word, do I trust that God will direct my paths? When God tells me that that. When I read Ephesians 5, I always want to talk about marriage because it's important. When I read Ephesians 5, when I read the roles and responsibilities of a husband and a wife, when I see that God has called me to love my wife like Christ loved the church, do I, do I listen to the message or do I trust the message? Do I trust that certain things have to be done a certain way for me to receive God's best? I love the fact that we're here. I love the fact that we're together. I love the fact that we are under the authority of God's word. But the fact that we're here together places us in a very, very hard place because it makes you accountable to what you're hearing. Like when God opens, when we open up the word, when we open up the scriptures, when God speaks to us, not when the preacher speaks to us, not when the man speaks to us, but when God speaks to us, we put ourselves in a position to being accountable to what God has said. There was a decision to be made. I love the fact that they didn't let their job get in the way or the, 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 the field get in the way or the distance get in the way. They heard what God said, and they immediately went to see God's promise fulfilled. So first, we see the dispatch. Second, we see the decision. But thirdly, we see the declaration. Verse 16 says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told concerning the child. In verse, in verse 17, it says, they made known the saying. Now, I want you to catch this because some of y'all haven't been to seminary like me, right? And y'all don't know Greek. But if you read the passage in Greek, it says, before they told a message, they went to seminary. 
And before they told the message, they got a four-year Bible degree. In the Septuagint, it says that before they got the message, before they told the message, they got ordained and they went before the church and they got hands laid on them. They had to do all that before they could share the message. Y'all don't see that because it's not in there. I'm joking. We have some Bible scholars in here. I'm joking. Don't, don't send me an email today, okay? I love how they didn't wait. They didn't have to wait to hit a certain level of spirituality before they could tell what God had told them. They didn't, they didn't get to this place in their life where they had to go to school and talk to the pastor. They, they didn't do that. They, they simply repeated what God had told them. And I hope and pray that's something that happens here each week. I know there's a difference between pastors and those who are not. I get that. There's, there, there's, I'm not saying that everybody's called to be a pastor. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is when God speaks to you, it's okay to share the message. When God speaks to you, don't allow Satan to tell you the lie that you need the degree and you need the training and you need to reach a certain level of spiritual performance before you can share the message. Um, one of my favorite, favorite poems is a poem called The Chosen Vessel. I want to read it again. It's one of, my, it's one of the poems that I read uh, often before I preach. It reminds me of just of a spiritual truth. It says, the master was searching for a vessel to use. On the shelf, there were many. Which one would he choose? Take me, cry the gold one. I'm shiny and bright. I'm of great value. I do everything just right. My beauty and luster will outshine the rest. And for someone like you, master, gold is the best. The master passed on with no word at all. He looked at the silver urn, narrow and tall. I'll serve you, dear master. I'll pour out your wine. I'll be at your table whenever you dine. My lines are so graceful. My carvings are so true. And my silver will always compliment you. Unheeding, the master passed on to the brass. And it was wide mouth and shallow and polished, polished like glass. Here, here, cried the vessel, I know I will do. Place me on your table for all men to view. Look at me, cried the goblet, crystal so clear. My transparency shows my content so clear. Though I am fragile, I will serve you with pride. I am sure I'll make you happy in your house to abide. The master came next to a vessel of wood, polished and carved and solidly stood. You may use me, dear master, the wooden bowl said, but I'd rather you use me for fruit and not for bread. Then the master looked down at a, vessel of clay, at a vessel of clay. Empty and broken and helpless it lay. No hope had the vessel that the master might choose to cleanse and to make whole, to fill and to use. Ah, this is the vessel I've been hoping to find. I will mend you and use you and make you all mine. I need not the vessel with pride of itself, nor the one that is narrow to sit on the shelf, nor the one who is big mouth and shallow and loud, nor the one who displays his content so proud. Not the one who thinks he can do all things just right, but a plain earthly vessel filled with my power and might. Then he gently lifted the vessel of clay. He mended and cleansed it and filled it that day. Spoke to it kindly, there's work you must do. Just pour out to others as I pour out to you. I want you to think about that poem. I've read that poem so many times, but this week as I read it, Something just, just stood out to me in my spirit. The truth is, I am being poured into, even if it's not by God. 
you and I are going to be poured into. I got to make a decision who pours into me. The world is going to pour in. Like, I, I hate to say this. I hate to be a, 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 a Debbie Downer this morning. But all week you've been poured into. All, all day yesterday watching TV, you were being poured into. The whole time you were around here today, you were being poured into. Whether it's music, whether it's entertainment, whatever you are doing, you need to understand that you are being poured into. And a lot of times we need to be honest with ourselves. The reason why we pour out bad things is because all we do is pour in bad things. The reason why we can't pour out praise and pour out maturity and pour out the gospel it's because all we do is get poured into bad things. And then we want to be surprised that when things get bad and I pour out something bad. I want to get surprised when, when I'm not able to pour out the scriptures, when I don't respond in faith. I want, to, I want to get upset when things are rough, when in reality, all I'm doing is allowing the world to pour into me. And that's why the world only comes out for me, because that's all I'm doing. I'm allowing the world to pour in, and that's why I'm pouring out. And as Christians, we got to get to a place in our lives spiritually where I understand I'm being poured into, and I'm going to make a commitment to allow the Lord to pour into me more so than the world pours into me. So first, the dispatch. Secondly, the decision. Thirdly, the declaration. But fourthly, there's significant devotion. Verse 18 says, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all things, pondering them in, their heart, in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Verses 17 through 20 really give us a model for discipleship. It's a model that has been consistent through all ages. The shepherds teach others what they had heard and saw. Mary treasured what she heard in her heart and then other people heard more because other people told about the gospel. But you think about it from this perspective. The three, and Chris, you can come on up, the three very simple applications to our text today. When we think about it, God has allowed us to be in a position where we can teach the gospel, we can treasure the gospel and we can tell the gospel. So our first application is this. For us to take a journey to joy, we got to be willing to teach the gospel. What you've heard and what you've seen needs to be taught to other people. As God pours into you, there's a commitment for you to pour into others. But before you teach the gospel, you got to catch this. Before you teach it, you got to know it. And a lot of us, we can't teach the gospel because we don't know the gospel. We can't teach the scriptures because we don't know the scriptures. We can't teach God's plan because we don't know God's plan. That's why we do Bible study. That's why the young adults get together. That's why we meet on Wednesday night, because we want you to be able to teach and know the scriptures. That's why we have a daily quiet time. That's why we spend time with the Lord, because... If you don't know, if you don't know the story, you can't teach it. So first, teach the gospel. But secondly, which is my, my favorite one, we need to treasure the gospel. 
But before you treasure the gospel, you must value it. I'm going to talk to myself. I'm not talking to nobody here. When I look at my life, I'm constantly in this battle of valuing things more than the gospel. My job, my car, my house, my 401k. It's a struggle in my heart. I just want those things to be right. Like, I want the gospel. I want that. But I want, I want, I want the good life. I want things to be right. I want to be blessed. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be blessed as long as those things are always secondary and subordinate to the gospel. What I struggle with is elevating things at the same level with the gospel. Making my job at the same level of priority as the gospel. Making my career at the same level and priority as the gospel. Making my comfort at the same level and priority as the gospel. And when we say that we got to value it, what we're saying is we got to value that above all else. That the gospel becomes of first importance in all that you say and all that you do. That the gospel is it. So first, we got to teach the gospel. Secondly, we got to treasure the gospel. And then thirdly, we need to tell the gospel. Well, before you tell it, you got to move to a place where you're not ashamed of it. The message of the gospel says that I am a sinner. That I am so sinful that there's nothing that I could do to earn God's love, to earn God's trust, or to, 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 to gain acceptance to heaven. But God's love for me is so great that God made a decision to do for me what I could not do for myself. That God's love is so amazing that God says, I'm going to die for their sins in their place. That I'm going to give them a home for in eternity forever. That I'm going to do it not based upon anything that they could earn, but I'm going to do it based upon the payment that was made by Jesus. A lot of times we get ashamed of the message because it sounds um, too exclusive. It sounds kind of short-sighted. It sounds like you can't really say that these days in this day of political correctness. But, but I, I'm not going to be ashamed of the gospel because in it reveals the power of God. That God's power moves me from a place of death to life. That God's power allows me to be a part of his family. That God's power allows me to be indwelled by his spirit. Like, I'm not going to be ashamed of what has transformed and changed my life. So when we think about this journey to joy, I want to encourage you this week to teach the gospel, man. Whatever you've heard, whatever you have experienced, find somebody to tell about it. This week, I want to encourage you to treasure it, man. Value it. Don't allow the idols of this world to compete with it. And lastly, I want to challenge you to not be ashamed of it, but to boldly proclaim the message. To not point the finger, but to tell people how God has changed and transformed you.